0: Welcome to the Human24 Live On Form podcast. This is a conversation with the people we have encountered and met across our lives. People who have and are still inspiring us with their journeys, an ongoing pursuit to fulfill their potential. Experts in their given fields, legacy builders, and people who strive to perform at their very best every moment of every day. We dig into their hows, their whys, what fuels their purpose, and what their ingrained daily habits are that ensure structure continues to defeat chaos. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so today on the Live on Form podcast, we are joined by Mr. Mark Winder, CEO of Goalball UK. How are you, Mark? Yeah, I'm great, thanks, Phil. Cool. So, before we get into what Goalball is all about and why it why it exists fundamentally, uh, let's take a little bit of, you know, let's take a look at your background and let's see where all that sort of delved from because there seems to be a, a bit of a pattern with your career as to, to where things have gone. I know that you've got an extensive personal background in sport. You got into teaching, I think, about ninety six. If if that's, that's right, right uh, with a specialism in PE. So sports yeah. always played this kind of pivotal role. And you know, obviously, we talk a lot about performance, so performance is. I am part of that, and that led to quite a number of roles from that. And from what I know, it's everything seems to have had this fairly solid community element about them. So I guess the first question, as with many guests, is: Was there a plan? You know, <laughs> was this a career path you envisaged? Obviously. Go ball from what I gather didn't exist when you set off on your career path like like many businesses don't but was this sort of the path you envisaged was this a, a an intentional move or you know has your career sort of mapped out with this intent or has it just been you've moved from sort of one thing to another because of the nature of what it was and what it gave back
1: it, it's a real mix Phil a real real mix I think it started at school and at school I went to school so that I could play sport we went to the same school, didn't we? And that school was a rugby, cricket, athletic school. And I was gifted at being quite a quick runner uh, and quite a decent athlete. So therefore, I ended up on the rugby team, cricket team, football team. And there was a guy at school that I know that you share a passion for, a chap who's now sadly passed away called Pete Kramer. And I would have done anything for him. I would have <laughs> run in front of the mo- on the motorway for him because he was such a great bloke. And I wanted to play sport. And that was in school, which was a good standard. And it was within the community. And we had some good teams in and around the community. And I I stayed at school for sport. I then fell into teaching because over the summer, I didn't have the time. I didn't have a summer job and I ended up doing some cricket coaching uh, at Penrith Cricket Club. And ended up teaching uh, what, what was called then the jumblies or the six and seven year olds because nobody could, it was like herding cats. And I really enjoyed it. So then decided that I wanted to become a PE teacher. Now I was hopeful that I was going to fail my A-levels and get another year at playing rugby and cricket and so forth. But I did all right. So I ended up in clearing and going into teaching. Loved doing teaching uh, and, and I had some really fond memories, but I felt as if I wanted a little bit more. I, the obvious career track were at the time was to go into this head teacher deputy head type scenario and I was I was a senior manager in a in a quite a big primary school but then this thing came up this opportunity to use sport to help learning and having sport has helped my learning I decided well, look, that sounds good it sounds interesting so this playing for success program thing came up and it was a uh, it was a partnership between uh, Education Leeds at the time and, and uh, who were they at the time? The Department for Education. I think the workers have changed their names that many yeah. times. And we, we set up this really cool classroom in a school in Chapeltown in Leeds. And if people who know Leeds, this area of Leeds is really diverse. There are 54 languages spoken in that school. And coming from Cumbria, that was initially a, a massive shock. Uh, so I ended up setting this this classroom up that that used the power of sport to help learning. And it was an after school club. And we were really fortunate to work in partnership with Leeds United, Leeds Rhinos, Leeds Carnegie at the time. And we had a real good, a real good thing that, that was going on. And I saw that it was it was really making a difference to these kids. Then I hankered after that around having my own stadium because I said we were going to trips to those different stadiums and thought it would be great to have a stadium as a resource for, to teach kids. And
0: I got the job at Wakefield Trinity and then it just sort of spiralled after there. Okay, so what, so what was your role at Wakefield Trinity? Because you've, you've set up this programme and, yeah. and, and I, you know, I've seen that it's, it's education. But obviously Wakefield Trinity is a rugby league, you know, it's old school rugby league. I mean, they were formed in like 1860 something. So they've been around since rugby league has been around and, and you were head of education at rugby league club. So people are going to look at that and go, well, how does that work? You know, what, what are you educating these people about? I mean, you can't exa- you can't imagine twenty or thirty, you know, big burly rugby league players going, you know, sitting down in a classroom in these tiny little chairs and, and being educated. So, so I mean, what is that? What you know, give us a bit of context there as to how that.
1: Yeah, was. it was twofold that role really. It was head of the the, the charity, yeah. at, at Wakefield Trinity. So that would that would be using the power of the brand to improve lives. Yeah. Uh, and that was through health and fitness and mental health. And they're still doing a really good job there. A, a chap called Craig Shepherd's leading that up now. But in addition to that, uh, because of my background in education, we had a real passion uh, to develop what we were doing. And what we wanted to do was to make the players ready for after, after their career, whether that, that career ended at 18 or 38, we wanted to be able to say we've given them an opportunity, we've given them a pathway out, out of sport. So I was this director of education and it was the only thing at the time. The first job that we had to do was to start delivering the ACE program. So that's the advanced apprenticeship in sport and excellence. So we took a part-time academy and took it to full-time. So I ended up working with Ryan Hudson uh, and we, we, We took 24 athletes, I think it was, in the first year, uh, worked with Loughborough College and delivered a full-time programme that included education in a very much similar way that that football teams do it. And it it was really quite successful, and there's about three or four of the players that are still playing at Wakefield Trinity that came through that that programme. That was the core. Then, in addition, uh, there's a a local organisation called Backstage Academy in Wakefield, and they formalized or have put together a program that formalizes the live event industry. So they've got a raft of qualifications that people can do who were who are putting on gigs and conferences and that type of thing, where in the past it was just people that had learned on the job. So they, they'd written a foundation degree in live events management. I worked with them and we developed a degree in live event sport management because it was very much that, that pathway was there. You often see ex-players in senior roles as CEOs and heads of coaches and they don't have a full understanding of the entire entire sector. So we developed this this qualification and it was actually on my last month in role there that we managed to get it validated by a university. So that degree is written and validated. It's never been delivered, but it is there ready to go out and be delivered. Okay. And
0: then We've, we've talked about this before with a couple of guests where, you know, it's this transition from, you know, our very first guest, actually, uh, a chap called Ollie Phillips ex-Rugby uh, Sevens. And we talked about him about this kind of transition that, that almost doesn't exist for professional athletes, for sports people who are, you know, they, they're signed at a very young age, whatever it might be. You know, it could be football is probably the biggest culprit of that. You, you've got kids signing at, you know, eight, nine years old for these big clubs. And they get pulled out of formal education to some degree. And then, you know, they're expected to make it as these professional sports people. But ultimately there's, there's, there's all of these factors that come into play where, you know, somebody might get injured, somebody might get, you know, uh, you know, taken away from, from the club they were at and moved on to another and slowly move down the rank, whatever, whatever happens, but they're left with, they're left with nothing if they're yeah. away from sports. So, so there's this whole thing and, also, people who've had quite established careers. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, this whole thing where people people leave at the top of the game, but then they're kind of lost. They're yeah. in kind of limbo, and and, and mentally it affects a lot of players because they just don't know what to do. They don't have any formal qualifications. They have no career path outside of sport. So they play sport, you know, up until mid thirties, early forties, if yeah. lucky, and then they just left. They're thrown into the, the wilderness and. And I know certainly in rugby league that's that's quite significant because you're getting these young lads who play rugby league and you know it was a working class game, and and you know, that's all they do. Yeah. And huge impact, you know, huge risk of injury, way more than sort of football or whatever it might be, maybe, maybe not as harsh with respect to you know, getting dropped and moving down rankings and things like this, but ultimately it's it's a it's a high risk game. So so was that all part of it? Was it part of, you know, giving these guys something else that they... It could- was, yeah.
1: And we Rugby League Cares were doing it and continue to do a job in doing that. Uh, I think in football, the Professional Football Association do a really good job. One yeah. of our directors at Goalball UK is a chap called Paul Reid, another Cumbrian, uh, who played football for, I think, 15 years. And then he's done a raft of different qualifications after finishing. And it, he... he, he says that the opportunities are now there. They probably weren't in the past, but they are now. But some of the other sports that don't have the resources and the funds of football, they really do struggle. Part of it for me was them younger kids. It was them kids that you'd pick up at 14 to, to 18, and then if you maybe pulling them out of a sixth-form college, maybe pulling them out of, out of university to some extent for them to follow their dreams. And me being able to look at them when they're, finish that journey if they're not if they're not signed to be able to say okay it's a real shame but you've had a good time if you've had a chance to follow your dream and look what you've also got you've got a qualification that can get you into uni and a lot of the a lot of the unit the, the the players were getting unconditional offers to get into uni because of their prior learning as being part of a high performance sport program so it allowed me to actually say we are supporting you and it allowed me to look in the parent in That's the eye right. and say Look, they may not make it. We can't guarantee they're going to make it, but they're going to have this, this, and this, which is going to allow them to do that, that, and that. And that—that that was at the heart of it for me, because too many people, in my opinion, see the athlete first, not the person. And if you've got a good person that you look after, you get a good athlete.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, and it, and it, it's that key, that key learning stage, isn't it? It's, well, it's yeah. not necessarily a key learning stage. I guess it's the key. Qualification stage, isn't it? It's that time when you pick up your GCCs yeah. then you move on to higher levels. If you're going to do them, then you, you then you graduate. You go to college. You go to university, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, they've you know they've been pulled out of that. Yeah, that's this thing where where all of a sudden they're in limbo, right? Yeah. You know, nobody nobody really wants to then go back to school at 18 because it's not the no. dumb thing. And and for some people, it's probably a little bit embarrassing, right? You know, you've got yeah. all your friends around you who've continued with this formal path of education, and and you've yeah. dropped out to go and become a professional sports person. And that just hasn't panned out. And, and I guess, you know, the way, the way that it is now, it's, it's far more competitive than it used to be. I think there's, you know, there's far more players in every sport, there's far more people, you know, striving for that dream. And obviously parents, right? You know, I guess that, that's a reassurance to parents because I guess there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of parents who don't let their kids try the sport because they're terrified of, of the outcome that you're actually trying to put preventative measures in for, right? Yeah, that, yeah. You know, I, I know that if, if, if you had a kid that was, you know, semi-talented, and you kind of knew that. You knew that they, they were maybe just good enough to make it, but you kind of lived in hope they would. Yeah. Do you send them to university or college, or, or do you send them off to, you know, Wakefield Trinity Wildcats to potentially <laughs> make it as a, as a player? I mean, yeah. it, it's a dilemma, right? Does oh, yeah, a massive, or... a
1: massive dilemma. And some of the other things we did, so we had a partnership with Silco school which is one of the a big public school within Wakefield and one of one of the players whilst my time there we made sure that he wanted to do I think it was something within graphic design yeah. so he did an AS level there in addition to and we 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 were committed to them we were committed to the players uh, and as i say you treat people right and you get good results and that that's been something that i've tried to do throughout my life and my career
0: And obviously, you know, that stems from, I'm assuming, that opportunity that sport gave you, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, like I've already said, I I think I was dragged through school, really, doing the bare minimum, probably, so that I could still play sport. Uh, And then university was similar. Yeah, Uh, ended up playing, I think, for the rugby team, athletics uh, and the cricket. I was captain of the cricket team at at college, university. We didn't play much. A lot of the time was around the bar. Uh, but I've made friends for life, to be honest, yeah, yeah. through sport. And I've learned a lot of lessons through sport. And I spoke to somebody who played in that rugby team who's done a lot of consultancy work at some big firms. And he just said, you know what? He said, if I was interviewing, he said, I'd look at the person and look at what they've done at uni, not just the qualification they got, because you can tell what sort of person you're getting from. Are they doing additional stuff? Are they part of the rugby team? Are they part doing sport are they part of the social scene within within a uni and if you've got one of them people you're getting a rounded
0: person and i think that that's what sport gives people a roundedness yeah and i think there's you know i was chatting to a hell this is i'm probably talking five or six years ago i was chatting to a big ceo big blue chip company and they were saying look we've we've stopped we've stopped offering jobs to first class graduates yeah because because the problem is they've got no social skills yeah. He said, "See, it said almost it's almost guaranteed that these people have been under a rock their entire time at university. So they've they basically spent three years not socializing with human beings, yeah, in order to to accomplish this this huge academic goal. And obviously, it was a very broad generalization. I mean, there were those people I went to university with. They were partying all the damn time, super talented, and and came away with first class honors. But they were saying, Look, we we prefer to get people who were two ones, two twos, because who were finishing university with those kind of grades because.'" chances are they probably socialized and they yeah. think we're lacking in our business right now is social skills and, and the ability yeah. to communicate. What yeah. we don't want is somebody who's not communicated for three years with other human beings. So, yeah. so, you know, there, there, there's some real interesting stuff around that and this whole, you know, this background of sport and, and you know, my background, I, I owe an awful lot to sport and and I, I owe a lot, lot of things to probably the same avenues that you you a lot too, you know. I, I chatted about Pete in a in a recent podcast I did with with James Haskell, and uh, because he played a very significant role in in my upbringing and really, I know,
1: think a whole community, Phil. Oh, it
0: was massive, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I always remember, you know, and, and again, we sadly lost him, but I always remember, you know, the, the day of his funeral. Like, you know, it was standing room only. It was it was insane. Yeah. And the thing the thing that I noted the most about that was it was all the bad kids. It was there were so many of these kids who probably at school despised him because mm-hmm. he was the person that you know when other teachers couldn't contest with these these kids, they'd send him to Pete. Yeah, he'd be like, look, and he just had this way of obviously bellowed at them and blah blah blah. <laughs> but but obviously, but he had this way of of people who respected him, and yeah. it was this respect. And then years later, obviously, you got these these kids who were a bit rebellious or whatever it was at school, but years later. I guess the penny drops, right? You know, you mm. slowly start to, you get into your mid twenties and then you start to, you know, acknowledge the people that have kind of helped along the way and the people that really meant, you know, meant well, you know, mm. whether you like them, whether you didn't like them, whatever they did for you, but they did yeah. something significant for you. And, and, and that was always the thing with Pete, And you know, without getting too far off topic, that was, that was a real thing for me is, is that I was like, hold on, but that kid absolutely despised him. it's yeah. he, traveled halfway across, you know, the UK to attend you know, they, they, this, this kind the of... Memorial service, yeah. Memorial service to him. So, it was a, you know, incredible. But again, I'm sure we could, we could actually just do a, an entire podcast talking about P, but, yeah. but, but So from that, so you've done the Wakefield and then you went from Wakefield to Bradford Bulls. Was that a similar role?
1: <coughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, although vastly different, if it can't be the case. So th- someone who I'd worked before, previously at, at Wakefield Trinity uh, became managing director. At Bradford Bulls I think it was he was the third supporting the third owner in probably six years yeah. and I was sold a dream uh, and it, it was a it, it was a dream with a plan uh, from a, the chairman Mark Green and it the the role was it was threefold actually that role and I, I don't know how I ended up doing it but one role was to manage the Bradford Bulls Foundation yeah. uh, and that that was one of the first rugby league charities so I had a real good reputation. The second part was to set up and take the, again, take the, the education of the, the academy players in-house. Uh, and then the third role was I was in charge of the lottery, the club lottery, which had something like four and a half thousand members. And I'd never, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I had some really good support. and We, we saw it make some good progress over the period. Unfortunately, the the chairman, had some financial difficulties and, and that dream came to a bit of an end after about two and a half years. Uh, ironically, it could have been so much different because th- there was a, a what's called in Rugby League a million pound game. So it was a promotion relegation battle. So Bradford being at the top of the pile uh, after the playoffs from the championship clubs and Wakefield being at the bottom of the pile from the Super League clubs. And it essentially meant that the winner takes all and gets a place in Super League. Uh and that, that that million pounds from the distribution from the, from the RFL from, from the TV rights. So we were part of that. Unfortunately we lost. It was a really, really close game and the, the business model that had been put forward was around getting promotion uh, and we didn't get it. And and then unfortunately the, the, the chairman ran out of money. He was putting his own money in to support the club and he wasn't able to do that anymore. It went to into administration. So Ironically, the club at Wakefield had been in financial difficulties as well, uh, just because of the nature of of the fan base not being huge uh, and various other overspending by a previous CEO and chairman. It meant that I was quite damaged by it. And being in charge of a charity that's linked to another organisation was tough because we had the reputational backlash that came with it. So I, yeah, I started
0: looking elsewhere. Okay, right. so so you said about out, outreach there because obviously previously when we talked about Wayfield, we were talking about what was happening internally. So so with this outreach charity, I'm assuming at that stage you're you're moving into <laughs> we, we've got a guest. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm assuming that uh, that outreach goes into community, right? So so you you're putting stuff back into the community. You're is that bringing sport to the community, or is that how is that working?
1: Yeah, it can be. It can be. So w- I mentioned earlier about the the plan for success scheme, yep. and that was that was a scheme which was hugely successful under the, under the Blair regime and the Labour regime of the eighties, sorry, the nineties into the noughties. i I'm too old, <laughs> uh, uh, and that was really succinctly put on 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 a quote by Nelson Mandela. And that quote was sports the power to change the world. It's the power to inspire, and it has the power to unite people in a way that little else does. It speaks to youth in a language you understand, and sport can create hope where there was once despair. So that really grabbed me. And I thought that's what sport did to me. And this playing for success program was doing that for kids. And there was 92 different, no, 160 different centres, I think there was around the country in various different sport in act, sporting venues that was pulling kids after school uh, and teaching them and making them better at english maths and and computer skills at the time when people didn't have computers in their homes yeah yeah and that program was really really successful and it was that was a catalyst for for what i saw and what i wanted to do yeah. and really since i since 2003 i think it was that's what my career has been about i would I'd probably say i've gone around the bushes on that but that's what it's been about okay. because sport gave to me and i want to give back and i want people to experience sport and and feel what sport's like and the friendships and the the skills that you learn and essentially i was doing this role and then mr Golf came in and, and and shut all these centers which was a disaster really and uh, I still believe a big mistake and there was so much learning that went on within the sector for teachers as well as the kids yeah. that that's been lost and they were just shut pretty much over about six months and at the time I was I was managing six of these centres uh, I think it was six in Leeds uh, just being newly promoted education management yeah, and felt I didn't want to go back to working in a local authority. I didn't want to go back into a school. And then these opportunities were, were given to me by Wakefield Trinity initially because of the work I'd done working in their clubs yeah. uh, in, with the support of the
0: local authority. Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, it's like a lot of initiatives like that. You know, I, I remember, well, I remember dozens of them. There's remnants of one actually when, when we drop, uh, drop, the, drop the kids off at school where which was the Adidas Streetball initiative, which yeah. the, you know, and there was a load of these things that sort of popped up, and they 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 seem to be very successful a lot of the time. But I guess, I guess there's commercial models that sit behind them, right? And and ultimately, when it comes to cutting funding, they looked yeah. at things that 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 are maybe doing better or maybe doing a better job than they think they are, you know. And I guess unless you're actively involved with that, it's very difficult to, uh, without having metrics, you can't really. You know, yeah, knowledge or appreciate what these things are doing, right? Because you know, just be, you know, there's good human beings coming out the other end of it who've got a successful career path. I, I guess you can't really measure that. Until- no, I do,
1: you can't. It's not. Doesn't come back yeah. in body fat loss and, yeah. and all them different things. It comes back in in stories that the kids tell. Yeah. and I think that that was the difficult thing. And and because it was funding delivered centrally to all these different local authorities and clubs, then everyone went off and did their own measure and there was no way to, it. Was, the way it grew up maybe could have been, if it was growing up now, it would grow up in a way that that was thought about, and the measure was there right from the beginning, whether that was some sort of sociological psychometric test or whatever, it would have been there, and then the longitudinal study would have been there, but society is growing, society is changing, uh, and, and we're, we're improving in a lot of ways, and, and it's a shame that, that that happened. There are some things that are still going on, and it also pushed, where I ended up working, pushed the, the club's community departments to becoming charities that allowed them to deliver some of that work. Yeah. So therefore, a lot of that work has evolved in some way, shape or form. Is it as good a quality? Hand on I don't think it is, but it's still an experience with a club using their brand as a method to improve the lives of people. And that's what we were doing at Wakefield. It was about improving their lives. And we had mental health work going on. We had women and girls stuff going on. That was key at the time uh, about getting them engaged. And we established a a women and girls rugby league team way before, way, way before the RFL were doing it. Uh, We were doing education after school. We continued to do that, which was really important. Uh, and then we were doing walking rugby as well, so all them different things to to appeal and get people active using the brand and the heroes within the community because these guys, these rugby league players, are heroes within the community and they still are part of the community. Football is a little bit different, isn't it? Because them heroes, you won't see them in ASDA or Sainsbury's or Tesco yeah. uh, or where you shop. Probably Waitrose, Phil. It's <laughs> it's you don't see them, but you do see your rugby league players in there. You do see them out and about on the street. So they are still that hero within the community. The, the 1970s footballer was, your 80s footballer was, you would still see them. So they might play a major part to a lot of people's lives. And it. some of the stories, again, that we have, and case stories around helping people who were suicidal or serious mental health problems or were inactive and, and, and obese, uh, we've got them. And, and that's, for me, them stories are much more important than than a statistic
0: yeah yeah and
1: it's real it, people's yeah. lives that you've seen yeah.
0: and that's and that's the real measure isn't it and and you know I always go back to you know being a coach and and the vast majority of the best kind of transformations were the ones that you couldn't measure yeah, yeah. they were the ones that you were you, you were like look you know there'd be people where they had chronic pain they had chronic injuries yeah. blah 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 but you couldn't measure it you know, no. like a, you know, the, like the before and after picture of somebody when they've lost a bit of weight or whatever it might be. And and like you say, it's it's exactly that metric. It's just, you can't, you can't measure it. And obviously there's that option now to move everything across the, with charitable causes, which which I guess is how a lot of them fund, they fund themselves, right? They become charities. They, yeah. they have to raise their own funding and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Obviously when the government was supporting these things, that, that revenue was, you were guaranteed a certain amount. It was just coming in. You didn't yeah. do all this extra legwork. Whereas yeah. now, you can't do the work that you're really there to do because 50% of it's got to be spent fundraising, which yeah. is actually, you know, raising the collateral to do it. And and again, I know a few people who are sort of actively involved with charities like that. And that, that becomes the biggest bane is that you've got these yeah. people who are hugely talented, who are, who, are, who are able to give back this huge amount, but they're spending most of their time actually trying to just raise funds to keep yeah. business, the, the charity going as such, right. Which is, which is a big, big challenge. So there's a very apparent sort of selfless drive to help people, which is, you know, incredible, Mark, and 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 obviously testament to you and and you know you giving back where you've received previously in the in the past. So so from there, you've I know that you're you're actively involved with a load of uh, sort of volunteer roles, which which we'll get into. You've got a list a mile long actually, volunteer roles, which are, which are quite interesting. But obviously, you've done Wakefield Trinity. You then went to Bradford Bulls. And then you moved on to your current thing, which is goal ball. Yeah. So tell me and tell the listeners about goal ball, what it is, what it entails, because, because this, the biggest challenge you've got with goal ball from what I, what I gather is just awareness. People, people need to know what it is, what it's about, what it's offering, what it's bringing to community, what it's bringing to people, you know, and a huge number of people from what I gather uh, and a growing number of people, which is great. Uh, and, you know, how does that work? What is it? Alex. Yeah, you've opened the
1: Pandora's box now. <laughs> uh, goal ball. It was a sport that was invented in 1946 after the war in Austria. And it was a sport for people who'd become blind in the war. Uh, it's a sport. It's a team game for visually impaired people, three aside. Uh, And the, go- the court is 18 metres long and nine metres wide. And the... The goal is the full width of the court. The aim, and I've got one here because I have to do this all of the time, is to throw this ball. So it's an audible ball that weighs, is the size of a basketball. And it weighs 1.25 kilograms. It's not inflated. OK, so it, it's like a light medicine ball, essentially, with bells in. They throw this ball to try and score a goal. It's got to touch the floor in your own third and it's got to touch the floor again before the, your opponent's third, or it can, it can be rolled. So in its highest essence, the ball's thrown at around 50 to 60 miles an hour over about 15 metres, and, and it, we both play cricket, Phil, uh, and that, that ball hurts. Uh, it, I, I got my cricket box out for the first time in about 15 years when I first played the game, because it's something that, that you do need. And in order for equality, one moment, I'm just going to go and get my bag of tricks again. No, I'm struggling. Sorry. They're, all players wear a blindfold. Okay. So no matter what the impairment each player has, they're, they're all blindfolded. So everyone's put on a, a level playing field. Okay, so the sport is is a Paralympic sport, but we're (laughs) hamstrung in some ways by the fact that we're not a derivative of another sport like you alluded to. So we're not a wheelchair rugby, a wheelchair basketball. So people don't have a frame of reference. However, it's really well known within the VI world. It's played in 96 different countries across the world, which is amazing when you compare to wheelchair rugby which is played in 26 countries around the world it's it's really well participated in. We've got around 700 people playing it in the UK. And if we compare that to to blind football, there are around 20 people playing that sport in the UK. So what we've done and and I'm not going to take credit for this at all is that we've developed a sport for people who are visually impaired Uh, and the sport is for everyone very often within para-sport, the, the grassroots element isn't there. So we'll put have-a-go days on, we'll speak to schools, we'll speak to universities, and we'll, we'll get activities going, and we'll give people a go at the sport, and, and we'll then signpost them to the nearest club, and we'll let them enjoy the sport in the same way that you and I did at 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, in community sport, play the sport, have fun, and experience the experiences that we did. And I fell into this spot by complete accident. The Bradford Bulls were, were in, in trouble, uh, as I've already alluded to, and I felt as if I wanted to change. And I got this change and I watched a video. Uh, it's the Transforming Lives video. If you put Goalball Transforming Lives into Google, you'll find it. And it was this story uh, of all these young people, children and young people who'd found this, who were visually impaired, typically inactive, couldn't play sport, and then they found goalball and the differences it made to them, people's lives. And it was just almost like that tipping point where it was like, hang on a minute, I've used sport to help change lives. This is a sport that's actually doing it. And it's, it's supporting people with a disability. I did have an interest in, in sport and dis- disability sport. And I, I was part of the... Uh, Disability Sport Yorkshire was a trustee and saw the great work that they were doing. And one, of, we talk about all the stuff that I've done, but one of the, the best things I did when I was at Bradford Bulls was, was help a young man. Uh, it was a chap called Luke uh, and he had cerebral palsy and he, he, he was in a wheelchair and he played within our wheelchair rugby team that we had. Uh, played a little bit, but was more happy just doing the admin and being an around the guys and sport was giving him a social like it does me and you, Phil. And it, he wanted to get a job and he couldn't. So I supported him and we got him some training and he did a steward's course. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he did a steward did the steward's course and I spoke to the operations manager at the club and I said, look, there's this guy here. He, he's got cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair. He wants to be a steward. And he I was really lucky that he said, I had a good relationship. And he said, let's give him a go. So we managed to put him in the family stand as what well, as as such. Yeah. And he was there as a meter and greeter working. And it was the first job I'd ever had. And that that was probably one of the greatest things that that I did, I think, because the look on his face when he was doing his job was remarkably different to the, the look on the most stewards' faces that you'd see. He was smiling. He was happy to be there. And it was Bradford. And I don't know if you know Odsell, but Odsell in February time, is the coldest place on earth. And he was there with his biggest smile on his face, in his wheelchair, meeting and greeting people, showing them to direct them to where they needed to sit. And he was just having the ball. And I just thought, yeah, my job here is done. And I, I was just, yeah. And so it, it linked up and it, it all sort of slotted in. Yeah. no, sorry,
0: And I guess that's, you know, that's this. Uh, some people will appreciate it. Some people probably won't, right? Is that yeah. And this is the remarkable thing I think about, particularly rugby league. I'm sure there's other sports very yeah. much like it. But, you know, certainly with the sports that I've experienced is that the fan of a rugby league club is a fan. I yeah. mean, they are like full blown. So you've got this you've got this kid who is probably, you know, eats, breathes, sleeps Bradford Bulls, right? And yeah. He's actively involved. In the, and you'd see this with stewards, right? You know, I always remember yeah. that kind of lower division football, you'd see stewards there who were like the biggest fans of these clubs, right? So you're doing something ultimately that you love with a club that you love. You're part of something. And I think this is a big thing about, you know, community stuff, right? Is people want to be part of something, whatever, whatever it might be, you know, yeah. whether it's a, whether it's a club, whether it's a, uh, you know, you know, a, a federation or a, whatever it might be. And obviously, you know, you are facilitating this, you've, you've, you've said, look, not only are you going to get a job, you're going to get a job as part of something that you actually love and, and, yeah. and, and desire. And I mean, that's, you know, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. So I, I can see why that sticks with it because it, you know, oh. even though it might be quite a, you know, people would look at it and sort of see it as, as I guess for some people. Change that kid's yeah. life. Yeah, very, his life Significant, right. Is that yeah. you, you get a job, yeah. you know, no, no, no. It's, 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 it's a lot.
1: Long- long- it was much more than that. Yeah. Someone yeah. who's dependent on disability level allowance, wanting to break yeah. away from that make a make a contribution to society. Right. Yeah. And and he was finding it really tough. And I was able to help him. I didn't have to do much really, didn't have to spend much money. There was someone that would train him. Just had joined dots together and, and did it. And I just thought, yeah, I did it in addition to everything else that I was doing when the club was struggling. But I thought this is the right thing to do. There was somebody who we worked with who who'd worked at Disney. Yeah. And it was something that we, we put into place when we were there it was something that they do at Disney, and it's called being off-task but on purpose. So if you go to Disney, or, or good supermarkets as well, uh, and you go and you say, what time's the next Mickey Mouse show? A transactional response would be for half past four uh, until half past five. The, a good response would be it's at half past four, it starts at the castle, it ends down by the river, the best place to watch it is here. And I recommend because you've got a little one that you do it here. That's a good response. And we tried to be off task and on purpose so that you're helping your customers because what customers is often the fans and whatever, and and they're not fickle, but fans are there, but they're still consuming your sport. They're still customers of your product. So you've got to make sure that your customer focus is strong. And that's what I felt I was doing there. It was a real strong – a person of Bradford who was a Bradford fan who played for our wheelchair rugby league, t- rugby league team was struggling. I'm going to go off task, but I'm going to have a purpose and I'm going to help Luke. Amazing.
0: Yeah, I know. It's I've read some stuff about, you know, kind of the Disney organisation and how they work with sort of uh, customer service Yeah, is the big thing, which, again, I think is – you know, you used a great example there at supermarkets, right? You ask somebody where somebody something is, you've got two responses, right? Essentially, you've got the one which is just over there, or you've got the one which is the the, the in-depth, the help, the
1: you know the walkie yeah. there. The yeah. walk you to the actual you know, place take, where you need to be. Is.
0: Yeah. And they, and they take great enjoyment out of it. Yeah. You know, you be. see them in it and they're like, Look, I've accomplished something. And you know this is something we've talked about in, in several of the podcasts in different again different guises is that you know we, we we've had military guys on who, who you know they talk about the whole bed making thing in the morning. It's this accomplishing something within yeah. the 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 role that you've taken, whatever it might be, you yeah. know, and 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 however trivial or small it might appear to somebody else, it's actually hugely significant for somebody, you know, yeah. that person who you know takes huge pride in a job that that probably doesn't pay very well that that probably it entails huge long hours, doesn't leave them long for social life, but they absolutely love it and and, and delve right into it. Right. So again, we kind of a, a bit off tangent, but all very, very relevant. Right. But so goal ball, right. So we've got, yes. we've got the establishment goal ball, which, which again, the, the ball with the ball with the the bells in it has been used in cricket. Right. <laughs> Not that one, obviously, but, oh, but uh, balls have been used in, in visually impaired sort of sport for a long time, right?
1: Yeah, they have. It's, it's the obvious way to for a person who's visually impaired to be able to, to play a, a ball spot. So there's a, a blind rugby that's being developed at the moment. Yeah. They're in a blind, in a, in a football, I think it's a size three size football that blind footballers use. Uh, but that, as I say, they're all derivatives of the sport. And they're used in tennis as well now as well, sublime tennis. So the audible ball is something that, that transcends across in, in order to allow
0: people with a visual impairment to play. So track a ball. 50, 60 miles an hour, right? So yeah. again, I, I, again, some people just won't get the context here. But 50, 60 miles an hour for like in cricket, in club cricket, just regular, yeah. standard club cricket. That's yeah. somebody who's balling pretty damn quick, right?
1: Yeah, pretty, right. yeah. In, in- and it's not over, it's not over 22 yards, Phil. It's over yeah, about 15 yeah. meters. So it's a lot less time and you can't see.
0: Yeah. Right. With all so, the shades on, remember. So for somebody who isn't visually impaired, who's clearly played the game, yeah. how difficult is it? It's really difficult.
1: I, I was really I, I was really fortunate. I played it first in 2017. And the the head of talent, Faye, who, who was great. She, she put me aside two really good young players. Both of them have subsequently actually played for GB senior squads. Uh, Stuart was in the middle, Mimi was on the right, and I was on the left wing. And it was I was given some coaching by a chap called Dan and his partner, Laura, who were GB players at the time before. So I didn't come across too bad. But putting the eye shades on and just, first of all, orientating yourself around court. So you orientate yourself around court, there's string under tape, so you can figure out where you are on the court as well.
0: Right, because I was going to say months. that, because because I would imagine taking a blow with that thing that sounds pretty damn solid, right? It seems like a pretty solid lump, right? And I would imagine... It is right, a
1: medicine yeah. ball.
0: Yeah, so you're going to get a clout across the head because you've yes. missed time something, you haven't quite you know, picked up on it quick enough, it's going 50, 60 miles an hour, it's walloped you, right? You're lying on the floor in a bit of a daze, you get up. How on earth do you know which way you're even facing?
1: So that, that's... that. I didn't.
0: Right. And I was playing. So
1: in the first instance, I wasn't facing 50-60, fortunately. I was going to Uh, say
0: that that must be up there because that's that that that
1: is that is high performance teams. Yeah, Yeah, that's our GB squads are are throwing at that speed. Our best players. Essentially, you'll be on the floor crouched, ready to, to, to get the ball, and the ball will be bouncing all it'll be a smooth shot along the floor. Yeah. And there is string, so there's tape to show where. For, for the referees and the audience to see where, where things are and wh- where the court is. And you use it as a player
0: in order to help orientate yourself. So, so this is tape that, that, that's, that's a, what, at waist level, or, or this is tape along the floor? Tape right? along the
1: floor, I'm not right, being clear, so I'm so, so Tape you, along the floor with string underneath. So right, essentially so you can, you can use your time. hands and your feet right. to orientate where you are. Gotcha, right. So yeah, and essentially that's how you do it. You can also use the goals as an orientation point as well. If you step backwards into them, you know where you are, and you can find it, your place. So as well, there's nets. There are nets. Yeah. Again, I'm just trying to.
0: Yeah, I have actually watched it. Like,
1: yeah, it's like a it's like a five-a-side football goal that's elongated for nine meters, and okay. it's a similar height to a five-a-side football goal.
0: Okay, so so tell me about that first experience.
1: Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was like nothing I've ever experienced before. It was, I had trust of these two young people who were 15, 16 to help me and, and support me. It was putting trust in the coach that was stood there as well. Ultimate trust in them because there are certain times where I allowed to speak and they would be speaking and helping me. And it's, it's taking away a sense that for most of us it it is crucial. And one we often over rely on, Uh, in order taking that away and, and being having to play a sport was just bizarre. The having to track just using your ears and feel around was unbelievable. And I felt completely out of my depth, completely out of my depth. And you flip it on its head and I go to many goalball competitions, not many over the last year because of COVID, but many. And you see people around the sports centre where we typically play with guide dogs, with canes, often walking into doors or having tripping over now and again, and they come onto a court and it's like they can see because they've got that familiarity. They know where everything is. I went onto that court and I was lost. yeah. yeah. They go onto that court and it. it you watch the sport, and I, I suggest anybody watches it on YouTube. Just have a look, and you will forget that these guys are wearing eye shades, and many of them have very well. All of them have very little useful vision, and it's almost like they they can see, and it. it, it yeah, it's it, it's really difficult to explain. <laughs> you just have to have to watch yeah.
0: it. I mean, it, it's it's pretty mad that you know that you can't actually because because all i'm picturing here is that you know almost like the dodgeball scenario right where people are just getting whacked left right center by this whopping great ball traveling at a decent trajectory and 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 being able to pick up on the sound because because again you know they've done the research with things like tennis right is that is that tennis the ball moves too fast for a human being to be able to react to it so they know that a lot of it is preempted by what you pick up and yeah, this is what they base around, like giant killers, right? So there's always right. somebody in Wimbledon or, or or cricket, right? Another example is that somebody comes along who know you've never seen ball before, you've never seen play tennis before, and you can't pick up on the cues that you yeah. normally pick up on. Yeah. So so that anticipation of where the ball's going has already been picked up by before they let go of it, before they hit. Yeah. It. So you're already moving to where it's going, or you've yeah. already anticipated it. Yeah, now, you do. Yeah, yeah. Now there is no anticipation here. You can't look at visual cues there are only auditory audible. cues right there's audible audible cues right where you might hear something sort of jangling over yeah. over in and you've got not only have you got to hear it you've also got to be able to acknowledge where it is yeah which i what? see is like a that's a real skill because yeah you know and and yeah i mean it, it's mad i just can't the human
1: body's clever though you know that more than anybody phil yeah. and the the human body will compensate. Sorry, I've got a phone call actually from someone who's visually impaired a chap called Tim Reddish coming in, uh, who's who's actually a member of the IPC on the board. He it, your body's clever and your body compensates. Yeah. So therefore, if you lose your eyesight, your other senses become more profound and more refined. So therefore, our people their tracking skills are much better than yours and ours. Yeah. So therefore, you and I would probably train and train and train and train and never be as good at goalball as the people who who are visually impaired. In the same way that we have different classifications, and that's a big thing in para-world classification, but B1 essentially is no useful vision. Uh, B2 is, I think it's up to about 5%, and then it's up to about 10% useful vision for B3. You have to classify as one of them, in order to play the sport at Paralympic level, and you often find that the tracking skills of someone who's B1 is better than someone's of B3. That's what
0: I was just about to say. Yeah.
1: However, often that if, if they've had been visually impaired or blind, blind since birth, their physical literacy isn't as strong, and similarly, it's diff, more difficult to coach. Their coachability is tougher. Right, So, so
0: therefore, the, there's a real fine balance in yeah, health. It's, it's so, motor, motor control sort of awareness, spatial awareness, yeah. right? So yeah. it's obviously those things. You, you've got, again, it's reference points, right? Yeah. So it's, 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 how, it's, how, do you,
1: how would you coach somebody who, who's visually impaired? Because the way that you've taught people always, yeah, yeah. I guess, Phil, is through example.
0: Yeah, yeah. This was, this was actually, it was an interesting conversation I had just recently with somebody about, about coaching. And I've, I've actually brought this up numerous times about one of the best things that I was ever taught as a coach was to coach by removing one of the facets you, you generally like. Yeah. So, so, you know, is coach someone without moving? Yeah. You know, show someone, is explain to someone horribly how to do something and then then flip it the other way. Yeah. So you coach someone without speaking. Yeah. And and if you can master both of those, yeah, you're going to be great because because you've got the comms and you know how to refine those comms into yeah. something useful. And that's part of this coaching skill, you know, but it, there was a big uh, SNC conference, just just well, just before COVID, I think it was. And they did a big survey. And the, these are some of the best coaches in the, the US, you know, collegiate level and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and they did a big survey at the end and they said, look, what, out of all the coaching skills that you could learn, are the things that you were able to and and obviously you've got a myriad of skills that you could learn as a coach, right? And categorically, I think it was about 80 to 90 percent voted for communication skills. Yeah. said those were the skills that were distinctly lacking yeah. so again that's you know and again a, a bit off on a tangent but it's but yeah it's it's relevant how, how do you coach that and i guess that that then becomes an ability as a coach as well to be able to coach people who are visually impaired to coach people in different guises and and and, and being able to do that and 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 i guess do not get frustrated about it just like an athlete would get frustrated right is that is that i guess people at b1 b2 b3 have different frustrations because yeah you know, spatial awareness for someone at B, B1, B I'm right in thinking is the complete loss of vision, right? Yeah. So, so people at B1, their spatial awareness is going to be a challenge, whereas people at oh, B1, yeah. spatial awareness is probably going to be a little bit better, but they're probably not going to be as, Yeah. you know. Uh, so it, 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 it really is. It's fascinating. So so tell tell me about the, the we've got the ground into the sport as to what yeah. it is, how it all entails. Mm. Obviously, we've got a GB team, I'm assuming yeah. this, GB We've two, two gb two, teams two gb teams competing in the olympics did they, so did they compete in the last paralympics
1: no we haven't we haven't qualified for the paralympics unfortunately uh, which is we we were very close certainly the women's team were very close okay uh, where we are in the world is that the women's team are ranked around 11th and the men's team are ranked around 20th and there's 10 teams that qualify the women are first reserve uh, as we as we are right now uh they they got to the semi-finals of the European A competition in 2019, uh beating the world and European champions on the way the Russians convincingly, 6-2, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. And then played against Israel and we were drawing in the last minute. And typical British team, we missed two penalties oh. that would have seen us through, and the Israelis scored, and they went into the final, and that sealed the their qualifications but if we'd have won that game we'd have have been going to the Paralympics so it was last minute two missed penalties finest of margins we're not there Uh, the men's team are going through a bit of a transition at the moment and then they've had some new players coming in I think all of the players apart from one are under 25 It's a late maturation spot because of the size of the ball and 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 the strength that's needed and I think I mentioned before but it's it's taken really seriously abroad and all of the teams that are going to the Paralympics are on full-time programs. So these guys are professional goalball players uh, in different ways, shape and form. And and we're not Uh, within the women's team. For example, we've got someone who works for the RNAB marketing. We've got three students and we've got someone who's who's just qualified as a, as a doctor, uh, a GP, well, not a GP. She's done medicine and she's working in a hospital. So that's, that's the nature of, 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 our, of our teams and our makeups. We were at London 2012, uh, and Goldball UK was only formed in 2010. Okay. So we're, we're quite infantile in where we are really, in our infancy, it's probably a better way to say it. And the sport's continuing to grow. The nature of inclusion within, within our society, Has probably prevented the sport from growing as much as it could have done. And I like to use a phrase called exclusion through inclusion. And if you think of a typical child or young person nowadays who has a visual impairment or a disability, uh, they tend to go to mainstream school unless they have profound difficulties. And that's great because in the past people would be taken to specialist schools and they wouldn't be integrated into society and they'd have real difficulties, similar to Luke in getting jobs when they were older. Yep. So that, that's great, I'll, I'll deal with that. But what I take exception to, and, and this is a case for many disabilities, especially people who are visually impaired, they're not given them opportunities to play sport that you and I were. Yep. And not even to the extent of PE, They might go in the corner with an audible ball and the teaching assistant, and they might do a little bit. But very often, more often than not, they're going to do extra literacy. They might go and do braille lessons. So they're not given that opportunity to play sport. They're then, as a result of that, not physically literate. They haven't played a community sport growing up. Therefore, the first sport they've often played is goalball. And whereas in, in Eastern Europe, these people will have been playing goal ball and other derivatives for people who are blind in their, in their schools, their blind schools, so therefore they've got that, that, that progression before we pick someone up at 14, 15. So we're play, already playing behind the game a little bit. Uh, and then because they've got these schools and people are already together, it's much easier for them to form programmes, and they often form them around a the school, where someone is often educated up to 25 and therefore or in the university in Germany's case, all their programs are around a certain university. And they're allowed to train all of the time. In addition to that, you, you look at Turkey. So Turkey won the Rio uh, for the, the women's competition. Each one of their players and each one of their coaching staff was given 1 million euros by their government for winning. And, and we're, we're, ter- we're running the entire organisation in the UK for less than a million pounds. So that's where we are. We, we were very close, in addition to that, in, in getting some uh, UK sport funding, yeah. Uh, which, for those that don't know, UK sport, it was on TV last night, I think. After the Atlanta Games, the government decided that they wanted to use lottery money to help us to develop a, a sector, that allows us to compete on the best stage. Yep. When that started, Ball UK didn't exist. So therefore we're already, we've missed the start of that. And, and some, some sports have had four rounds of it. We just missed out on receiving that funding this year, but we are receiving a smaller amount from, from UK sport for the first time, which is just short of £300,000 to last us over four years. But every trip we go on costs 20 grand to take 10 people. Yeah. And you, yeah, so that's that's where we are. As I've gone
0: off off track again, you get me started no, no, no. with it. No, no, no. It's it's it, well, it's all relevant. I mean, anybody who's listening, you, you know, needs to understand what the, you know, what the sport entails, what the yeah. sport is about, you know, why it struggles. I guess, and and I guess it's also relevant to a lot of sports. Uh, you know, in in you know in its infancy, uh, you know, we're not professional. We don't have professional players. We don't have people doing it full time. We don't have the. Money and the the capacity to do that, obviously, uh, which is obviously something that needs worked on. But just with respect to sort of availability as such, because you know we've been talking about this in this kind of little nutshell and saying you yeah. know it's it, it's this thing that you do. But what are the locations of you know? So if so, if somebody out there, you know, any of our listeners or people who know people who are visually impaired who want to get into sport or have, have fallen from sport or you know want to get involved with ball, where? Where is it based? Where are the, where are the bases of it? How many, how many venues do we have across the UK? So how accessible is it for people to get into?
1: If you go on www.goldballuk.com, you'll be able to see our list of our clubs. I think there's around 35 clubs that are active across the UK. There's one club in Scotland, one in Northern Ireland, one in Wales presently, and then the most of the majority are in England. There. They are dotted around. We do have some, what we'd say, dark spots in terms of we don't have much activity, but they tend to be areas where there's little pop- or less population. So, believe it or not, Cumbria, we, we don't have much activity, yeah. but there is activity going on in Lancashire. Cornwall, again, we don't have much activity. But in in the main, you're probably about an hour away from your nearest club okay. in, in most of the UK. And what so, about schools?
0: So, so uh, obviously, you know, school involvement of anything like this, I guess, uh, again, is a uh, a staffing challenge, I guess is an equipment challenge, uh, uh, you know, courts, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess there's, there's adaptations just like anything, you know, you can you can adapt to suit any sport or figure out how to, to work it out around a, a, an indoor basketball court or whatever it might be. But what about schools? Because I know that, we, I know that within our listeners, we do have a lot of school teachers and people who are actively involved with schools. So, I mean, how would schools get involved with this?
1: Yeah, there's a variety of ways. So we do deliver a Ball Leaders or a School Leaders Award uh, that can help train up teachers and teaching assistants and people at work in, in, in the education sector. Yep. So we can do that. We do it really, really quite cheaply as long as we cover our costs uh, because we want more people within the workforce to help spreading the word, to be honest. In addition to that, there is equipment. So... Most schools will have not the blue ball, but there'll be an orange ball within there that's made of foam and it's audible. That was part of a Sainsbury's pack prior to London 2012, and there still seem to be in most schools, these packs. And that's the derivative ball that we use. And we use that in part of the school games. In addition to that, if you get in touch uh, with inquiries at goldballuk.com, uh, we can give you some resources. There's lots of teaching resources that we've developed over the last three years uh, by a chap called Stephen Newey, who was our schools was our schools officer and now is children and young peoples officer. So we're, we're more than just about schools. We did have some funding from BBC Children in Need, and that was to go into schools to teach goalball. Uh, and and that, that funding unfortunately now has run out and COVID has taken precedence of where they're putting their money. Of course. But saying that, it's given us a real good start and it's given us these resources to help us move forward. So it, it, there are opportunities, just get in touch and we will do our best. We've got a, a strong, a strong saying of it. It's never it's not always yes, but it's never a no. It might be a not yet. Yeah, but yeah. We, we are committed to to everyone in any in any way, shape or form we can.
0: Cool. So, and and people can get in contact just via the website, right? So, yeah, so- get in touch via
1: the website or email me. I'm Mark at GoldballUK.com. Um, I like to be forward facing. I like to be outward facing. I like to help people wherever I can, as I think I've just alluded to over the last hour or
0: so. Cool. And uh, social because obviously people do go through
1: at GoldballUK yep. at uk on all of them. Yeah, just yep. whack it in,
0: so you'll find yeah. us. Cool. So what? Uh, so the plans for the future. I'm guessing professionalism will be a a, a thing for further down the line, I guess. Uh, Qualifications, next Paralympics are going to be, hold on, on. uh, because are we out out of sync here? We're out of sync now because of COVID. So what are we, 2021 now? So it should be 2020 was Tokyo. Yeah, so have they pushed that back though? I can't remember what they'd actually done. Tokyo's 2021.
1: So that's taking place
0: at the end of July. So it's the Olympics, Paralympics is August. Right. So 2025 is the next kind of.
1: No, they're not pushing it back four years and making it three years. So it'll be a three so year. It pulls back
0: into the normal sequence. Yeah, it does. Right, so so 2024 is yep. Paris. Paris. Okay. So the goal is to get there, yep. have teams, male, yep. female, yep. And, and, and be represented there. So, and uh, what about ages? Tell me about ages. So, so uh, you know, obviously we've got grassroots, uh, you know, these clubs. What do the clubs cater for age wise? Clubs
1: cater for variety. Uh, I think the youngest person present playing is about eight, nine years old. Okay. Uh, the oldest is over 60.
0: So, there's no, so, there's no, so anybody at
1: any age is, yeah. uh,
0: go along to any of these clubs and get involved. And we have
1: three levels of competition as well, Phil. So, th- there's a novice level, yep. which is for, Often people with additional needs uh, who stay within there because they might also have a hearing problem or might have a physical disability as well. In addition to that, it's people just finding the game or people who are taking a step back and slowing down They might be a little bit older. So that's the novice. What we would say the core of our game is our intermediate level of competition. Uh, And that's the brunt of where we are. Uh, And you, you get a real good feeling for the sport within all of it, but certainly within there. And then we have our elite competition, which is growing as well. So there are three levels. So you can enter it and, and move around depending on, on your ability.
0: Amazing. Mark, So it sounds, sounds great. Sounds, sounds developing. I mean, it, it's fantastic and a great opportunity for, for, I'm guessing, so many people. I mean, you'll know, you'll know better than I, I do. But what are the statistics for visually impaired people in the UK now?
1: Yeah, you're pushing me now. One of the difficulties, okay. I'm not going to say a number, because one of the difficulties is often people don't disclose it.
0: Yeah. Uh, so it's, no I the it's probably higher than people think.
1: Yeah, it's around 25 million, I think. I've, I've, I've said a number. Yeah. I know so. somebody might call me out on it from our sector. But that, that's where it is. But one of the important things is that out of all of the disability groups, people who are visually impaired are least likely to be active. Okay. So you think of people with cerebral palsy and other conditions, they're more likely to be active than somebody who are visually impaired. Wow. And also two thirds of people with visual impairment are not in education, employment or training. So we are working with a group of people who are largely forgotten by society. And throughout COVID, we've had all sorts of different challenges. Uh, to One of our people who's, who's got, just got a degree, a first class honours degree, uh, and she does have a social life. <laughs> uh, at Leeds University and she she said it's actually the first time through COVID where I felt disabled and yeah, she went yeah. on to explain that she has almost like a tube map on, on how she and where she goes and lives her life where she knows her roots yeah. and with the stuff in the supermarkets it was a real challenge for her because her local supermarket was in, in, incidentally in Asda she'd go to Asda if there wasn't any milk she didn't know what to do Right. So therefore, it actually she had to ask for help, and while she was in ASDA, how was she meant to social distance? Because if you remember, all of the social distance guidance was marks on the floor. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, she yeah. was unable to do that. So she said it was. So it's actually been a really quite tough time for our people over the last year or so, as it has that. everybody. But I think that the VI world of
0: the community have have really suffered more than a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, across the board, I think there's been a lot of people sort of silently suffering who, who yeah. this has impacted way more than anybody anticipates. Yeah. You know, certainly, uh, you know I, know, I know a lot of people, myself included, you know, it hasn't been a massive challenge to me because there was nothing there that hugely influenced my life uh, you know, I'd like to say I'm, I'm very social, but I'm, I'm not really. So, so, so all the things that, that I would have typically missed, you know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't really miss. It wasn't, it wasn't a massive thing. Whereas, you know, I've got friends who it massively impacted Yeah, uh, and the mental and physical impact, I think on a lot of people has been, been enormous. So Mark, you're doing some, some great work, uh, and you know, huge respect for you you know, and what you've done throughout, throughout the last you know, I won't. No, I appreciate it, that's half kind of years, it. years, but 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 some incredible stuff there, and all. You know, selfish kind of, as well because I have fun. So, well, uh, you know, I think everything's got to have a, a, a remnant of being selfish about it; otherwise, it doesn't work, does it? So, you know, people. Oh, are, fair. I think there's there's got to be that element there. But uh, anybody who's listening, who and 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 I think this will be the first kind of shout out I've given like like this. But anybody who's listening who's got friends who are visually impaired who, who uh, you know, get them involved you know, loop them in with the club. You know, goal balls is a, a, a big growing thing. It's activity. We're massive proponents of movement uh, at Human24. We talk about it a lot, you know, and, and this is a, an all-inclusive thing is that everybody should be out there moving, doing something that's fun, being involved with activities that are, that are and again, community-led, Right. You know, you meet people. You you, you meet people who have, have similar goals. Who have, uh, you know, and and you got that competitive aspect if you want to get into that. So, so there's huge amounts of opportunity there. So, any anybody who's listening who who has friends who are visually impaired, loop them in with goalball, get them involved, and and you know, hopefully we can get a team to 2024, which would be super cool. One of my one of my aims for is to get you on a
1: goalball court, and once we're out of lockdown, <laughs> I, we will be inviting you to one of the London clubs. Yeah, that
0: could be, that and there will be, be pictures and videos. I, I am actually a little scared at this moment, but uh, but yeah, that that yeah no, I'd, I would I would thoroughly take you up on that. So so that, that would be super cool as soon as things are. And and anyways, incidentally, how where are we at with restrictions? So people, obviously, I'm telling people to get looped in here yeah. and and get involved. But where are we at with restrictions right this second?
1: Our clubs are, are, are back. There is a. Well, uh, Dispensation for for Paralympic sport, sport for people who are disabled, because of the first lockdown and the problems that we've alluded to. Uh, so that, but not all of our clubs are in operation because we've put together obvious guidelines for people to yeah. follow in order to get there. In se- our clubs are now training in the, in the main. Yeah. Uh, get in touch with your local club, and it's different depending on where you are. But our club and competition structure, which has been remodelled over COVID, starts again in September. Touchwood. Uh, as long as as long as the, the pathway continues to, to improve.
0: Yeah, and hopefully for everybody, the, the, the restrictions are largely going to be lifted soon. So, so fingers yeah. crossed for, for, for everything, really. So,
1: Phil, yeah. um, so I want to jump in because I made a list of things I needed to mention throughout. Oh, yeah. The one thing it. I haven't mentioned, and that it. is that in, in 2023 in Birmingham, yep. IBSA World Games will be happening. So, there'll be nine different sports for people who are who blind or partially sighted taking part in Birmingham in and I think it's in July of the year have a look at it and if you want to see goalball or you want to be involved in whatever level of sport for people who are visually impaired go along to that it's two years ago to go but I think it'll be here before we know it so the year the year after that the Commonwealth Games. Cool and
0: that's and that's and that's an event that you're mass goalball is massively involved with it yeah we are massively involved in it yeah so
1: it's british blind sport who are like a a national disability sports organisation that are an umbrella that support people who are visually impaired into sport yep. they they applied because they are the member of our federation yeah goalball is a it, it is a key part of it in terms of that event is a qualification event for paris Yep. so it's a, it's a home games it's one of the bigger 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 part bigger sports within the within them games and there'll be lots of blind football going on there as well blind football and VI football so
0: be a really good event and lots of different sports awesome fantastic mark it's been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you for taking us through goalball and and obviously you know your history explaining, you know why you ended up where you where you are which i think is a critical aspect you yeah. know because again I, I think it's you know often that context is lacking. I think when you, when you talk about things like this and people need to know why you're doing what you're doing. And I think it all, it all, you know, it all adds up and it all makes sense. And it, you're doing it because you love it. So, and, and I think that's a real important part of uh, acknowledging that element of anybody who's involved with anything. So, yeah, yeah. so it's been super cool. Uh, good to see you again. And you too. Best of luck with goalball. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for your time. Speak soon, Mark. Take care. If you enjoyed the podcast, click subscribe and please leave a review and thank you for listening.